time to uh, get into our midweek media watch as we welcome to the team uh, Hayden Donnell. G'day Hayden, nice to see you again. Kia ora Mark, nice to be here. Well you started close to home this week, RNZ got a, a new label added to its Twitter account. Yeah that's right and not exactly a wanted one, so all the tweets from the main RNZ Twitter account are now labelled government funded media and you might think that's fine. That's what we are. So, I mean, after all, it's technically accurate. But there's a bit of underlying context that has the station objecting to the label. So what is that context? Well, the government-funded or state-affiliated or publicly-funded labels on Twitter have traditionally been reserved for news outlets in countries that are dictatorships or autocracies where the state has a pretty high degree of control over their editorial output. So they've been put there as a warning to users that what they're reading could in essence be propaganda. So the tag has that underlying implication for anyone who's been using the app long term. But there's also the fact that Twitter says organisations, this is in its actual text explaining the label now, it says that organisations given the tag are government funded, accurate, but also that they may be subject to some editorial control by the government. And that's where RNZ has objected particularly, saying its charter specifically states that the government can't have any editorial control over its operations. So it's not alone in having strong misgivings over having the label applied to it. CBC in Canada, along with NPR, the PBS uh, in the US, they've already left Twitter after having that label applied to their accounts. Uh, Some of their gripes against Twitter, I'd say, if anything, are even more justified than RNZ. So NPR was initially labelled state-affiliated media, despite the fact that it receives less than 1% of its budget from the government and is actually a private non-profit company. So it still has the government-funded label on its dormant account, despite all that. Is this, do you see an overreaction by these media outlets? I mean, and they are government funded, even if it is only a small percentage. Yeah, um, and RNZ in, in, in totality. Having said that, I mean, I don't think so. I mean, I've seen pedantic arguments highlighting the, the word may in that description of the label. You know, that's technically correct. May also carries the possibility of may not. Uh, I mean, it, I say they say t- t- Twitter's technically not incorrect there, but I just think that's either being willfully obtuse or really missing the forest for the trees. The implication is clear here. It's really trying to cast doubt on these organisations' independence. If you actually see it how it appears. It's not just on someone's Twitter profile, actually in your feed where you're getting served tweets. Whenever that whenever that organisation comes up, you'll see the words government-funded media right on every single tweet that they post and every single one that comes into your feed. So it really reinforces this message and it's something that everyone highlights when they see it. So, I mean, it also seems like a highly targeted intervention because it's quite particular who gets this label. It seems a bit haphazard. I mean, you could say the Washington Post is billionaire funded. It's owned by Jeff Bezos, the owner of Amazon. I mean, private media companies, you could say they're advertiser funded. I mean, we all know that that comes with, you know, the risk of outside editorial pressure. And I mean, all newsrooms face these pressures. They're all funded by something and that's why they do guard their independence so jealously. Mm. So, I mean, I just, I I think it isn't an overreaction. Now, a lot of this stuff gets blamed on the new owner of of Twitter, of course, Elon Musk. Um, Is it fair to blame him for this in this case? Yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> it's a fear to blame Elon Musk. <laughs> I mean, just about everything in Twitter that's going wrong is because he had a whim on one day or another and decided to walk down a weird path. I mean, this is him kind of acting like an online troll, apparently trying to draw an equivalence between public media and democracies and outlets that are controlled by autocracies and autocratic regimes. And that's just because he doesn't like the content of those publicly funded outlets and he wants to undermine their content. But as with a lot of his decisions lately, it's based on kind of ill-informed opinion. There's really, I think, no comparison between RNZ or the CBC or the PBS and Russia today. And I think it's also self-destructive. I mean, recent reports have Twitter usership shrinking 7.7% year on year. The user experience of the app has declined markedly. You've got more bugs, more outages. They're more common. Advertisers have fled. That's down. So, I mean, some of these accounts that have left, like NPR, they had millions of followers. And that's part of the reason why people use the app, to get news from trusted sources. And uh, that's not exactly going to help with that. In fact, it just further diminishes the utility of Twitter at a time when it's already struggling. Seems like a dumb mm. idea. So now we're moving on to, uh, well, political interviews on TV. There seem to be a few at the moment. It must be election year, do you think? It could be. Is it? <laughs> I've, I've heard rumours of an election coming up. There was a veritable bonanza of interviews with political figures over the weekend. Uh, from three and TVNZ's respective uh, weekend politics shows, News Hub Nation and Q&A. So I'll start with News Hub Nation, which had an interview with national leader Christopher Luxon. And here's how that began. You've been National Party leader now for a year, and yet somehow people still don't feel like they really know you. That is what I hear. Yeah, Why look, is that? I, well, I think it's, um, it's an interesting one, because I think people know what I've done, but mm -hmm. they don't necessarily know who I am. Now, that, that just gives you a vibe of the interview, really. It was... Definitely primarily focused on personality, why he's polling poorly, why he's out of touch with the public, that kind of thing. And later on we had a, a kind of a get-to-know-you session, a, a lightning round with questions like these. Uh, when is the last time that you cried? Um, oh, it would have been a while ago, uh, probably with my grandmother's passing, yeah. Um, ideal date night? Um, we do date night every Saturday night. Is it really true that people don't know Christopher Luxon? He's been around now a wee while. We've known him as Ian New Zealand head. What evidence do we actually have for that claim? Yeah, I mean, I'm a bit sceptical of it. it the, the assertion almost seems like assumed knowledge out there in media circles. I'm starting to wonder if it is a bit apocryphal. I mean... There's been a lot of people citing it. TVNZ's political editor Jessica Much Mackay got in trouble last year for handing out what appeared to be free political advice to Luxon, saying, uh, these are her words, we are encouraging him to do more photo opportunities and um, also that people need to get to know him. Now, that seemed a bit like free PR for the National Party leader. I think that she said that she was being misinterpreted there. Um, you had Newsroom's political editor Joe Moyer saying a very similar thing on the site's new podcast, Raw Politics. Certainly I do my best to talk to people in the regions, um, have done a bit of that lately and you know these are people who are a little bit tuned into politics but not you know madly like we are and they still say they don't know who Chris Luxon is and what he stands for. 
Now, to her credit, she's citing real-world evidence there, but it's still a bit anecdotal, isn't it? It's based on some people in the regions, and it does feel a bit uncomfortable to treat it as a solid fact, and I think in News Hub's case, to base a large portion of a Saturday morning long-form political interview on it. So, as you say, Luxon's had a big public public profile... (laughs) Before becoming the leader, he's been the leader for more than two years. He hasn't exactly been invisible in the media. So at what point do we start suggesting another hypothesis? Perhaps the public does know him and they don't much like what they see. Or perhaps what I'm engaging in right now is guesswork and pseudoscience on par with reading tea leaves or consulting body language experts. And maybe all of us should do a little bit less speculation and essentially water divination on what's driving the public mood. Because who knows, really? Well, do you see any harm in, in doing these kinds of, you know, getting to know you, what sort of country music he likes, etc.? I mean, uh, you know, it's it, light and frivolous, really, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, and honestly, sometimes you just want to hear that rather than a big examination of a, of a meaty po- policy matter. And I'm not opposed to that. I, I don't want to kind of scold people for not always talking about serious stuff or mm. to say that getting to know politicians as people doesn't matter or their character doesn't matter. It does. But I, I think with a show like News Hub Nation, we probably did miss an opportunity to talk more about policy with Luxon here, particularly with a lot of big stuff going on right now. I mean, at one point in the interview, he even did try to talk about the 10 policies on their website, but I think the attempt fizzled. One policy heavily discussed these days is water and specifically what was once called three waters. Did that come up on the show at all? Well, not with Luxon. But on the same show, there was a much shorter interview with local government minister Kieran McAnulty on that topic. Mm-hmm. So News Hub's political editor Jenna Lynch sat down with him to talk through the nitty-gritty of the government's revamped uh, affordable water reforms. So that's the artist formerly known as Three Waters. And uh, here's a segment of that. The regulatory impact statement for Three Waters says that entities need a population of at least 600 to 800,000 to see any real efficiency mm-hmm. gains. What's the average population served by your 10 entities? Significantly less than that. So We're not pretending that this is the best policy solution, but what we are saying is that in terms of finding a mechanism by which ratepayers will still save significantly more than the status quo and local communities each get a voice, which we were told when we talked about this policy that that was the most important thing alongside cost savings, that's why I believe 10 entities is that right balance. Now, it turned out that that was the interview that kind of made headlines across the media on Saturday after it was first broadcast. And and it also turned out, though, that viewers on three only saw about half of it. So this is what uh, Wright said at the end of the six-minute interview from the show. For all of you policy train spotters out there, you can watch the extended version of that interview on newshub.co.nz. Policy train spotters. Now... (laughs) I gotta say that if you're up on your Saturday morning, you know, and you're tuning in, what you're doing, you're tuning into a show about New Zealand politics, there's a really good chance that you are a policy train spotter. I'd say that's probably primarily the audience of News Hub Nation. I mean, this isn't an interview on ZM where you might like to keep things a little bit light for the expected audience. I mean, McAnulty was also on TVNZ's uh, premier politics show Q&A the following day, and that got a full 12 minutes, and he was tested on a bunch of things. But this is him being tested on mana whenua representation uh, by presenter Jack Tame. Do you accept this model is not strictly a one-person, one-vote model. Yes, the proportion of mana whenua is higher than the proportion of the population. 
do you accept that that is not a strictly democratic model? There are provisions in our laws around the treaty that aren't democratic. Co-governance of uh, the Wanganui and Waikato River, for example. There are provisions that we have in this country that wouldn't stand up to a purely academic democratic framework. But that's not how we work in New Zealand. I just thought I, I was... These were quite remarkable interviews, and I just want to note a couple of things about them. And one, just quickly, is that if you notice, both of those answers begins with basically McNulty conceding the interviewer's point. Mm. Which is not necessarily the norm for government ministers, I would suggest. Yeah, not necessarily for ministers or indeed politicians in general. So on the same show, Tame interviewed Auckland Mayor Wayne Brown, and that was, to put it very euphemistically, a much more defensive encounter. And I wonder whether it would improve the quality of our public discourse in general if politicians were a bit more willing to concede points, concede uh, what interviewers are saying and then uh, state their case in reply. But I think, I mean, it was refreshing to hear, honestly. I don't know if you found it that way. But um, I think to enable that, maybe it would probably help if the media didn't punish them so mercilessly (laughs) for changing their minds or having these kind of human reactions on things. You know, if we didn't mercilessly say, oh, you're flip-flopping whenever you you change a policy position in response to evidence or public... um, Feedback. Kieran McInerney does have a sort of a different sort of demeanour, really. I mean, I think he started the press conference about the three waters changes by saying, "Well, this is the guts of it," you know. Yeah. Good old basic farmer type language. That's and, right. That's right. Shall we play that clip? Uh, good everyone. So here's the guts of it. Up to a hundred and eighty billion dollars, local councils need to find, and they can't do it by themselves. Yeah, and that was that was. Um, that guy, that kind of went semi-viral, him doing that. He does have this different uh, way of doing things. Yes. And what's interesting, the thing that I find quite interesting about it is that through just talking about politics or policy in these kind of almost dry, uh, evidence-based interviews where he's challenged on the substance, he's almost getting what people want Luxon to develop. He's getting this public profile. So... Uh, you know, maybe we do need to get to know politicians, but it might not be necessary to ask them about the last time they cried. I mean, in fairness to News Hub Nation, Luxon was also questioned on National's boot camps scheme for wayward youths. But, mm. I mean, he faces other policy channel cha- challenges. And, uh, for instance, McAnulty says National's Three Waters alternative is unaffordable and will put up rates to unsustainable levels. I'd really like to hear his response to that. There are questions about tax, climate change, transport. And, obviously, we've heard tonight the, the party's candidate vetting processes and selections. And... McAnulty was being interviewed on a pretty wonky and train spotter friendly topic. Eh, that's the ideal ownership structure for our water assets, but it was genuinely illuminating and we probably did, did get to know him. So I think uh, Luxon should probably get a similar chance to shine or dim uh, being challenged on these policy matters too. Now, before we move on, you also wanted to mention a choice of guest for the political panel on News Hub Nation. Yeah, and this is a weird one. So this is the panel being introduced. Kumayana, welcome back. Time now for our panel, CEO of Waipereta Trust and former Labour MP John Tamahiri. So it's interesting there that John Tamahiri was introduced 
as a former Labour politician and chief of the Waipadeta Trust because he actually has a more current political role, and that's Tane Vice Chair of Te Pāti Māori. And I'm not one of those people that thinks every commentator has to be monkishly detached from the political sphere and existing in a pure bubble of neutrality. And to be fair, Tamahiri didn't seem openly biased towards Te Pāti Māori or anything here, but it does seem at best strange to have a pretty key and senior figure in a political party that polls suggest could hold the balance of power at the election, appearing as a seemingly independent commentator without their role being spelled out. So I'm not sure that National or Labour's presidents would get the same invite, for instance. And at the least, I think it really should have come with a very loud and clear disclosure up front. Well, let's speak of clear disclosures. You spotted an interesting one on Morning Report this week. Yes, this was a bit of a change. So Inframetrics Chief Executive Brad Olson, this is almost a monthly appointment for him. He appeared on Morning Report to talk about the latest edition of the monthly grocery supplier cost index, which measures the drivers behind supermarket price increases. And those listening in would have heard what's become a relatively familiar refrain. All right, we're talking about suppliers here. So this is, uh, what, what are we seeing in terms of the trend? You're seeing an in, a continued increase in prices. Yeah, absolutely. What uh, we're seeing through the numbers is that supplier costs continue to rise uh, and have now been uh, seeing an annual increase of 10% or more for the last six months. Now, this grocery supplier cost index, it comes out, I think, monthly, or at least every two months, I think monthly. And that echoes what past reports have said. I mean, many of them have been repeated relatively uncritically by the media. It says that supermarket price increases are basically due to rising supplier costs. However, in the middle of this interview, a disclosure was made. Um, the grocery supplier cost index, the numbers that we're looking at, that's commissioned by one of the supermarkets. Um, important disclosure, I think. But when we look Hang through on, so, those so, things, what, so this is the supermarkets reporting their supply costs? This, this, this is using, this is using uh, data from the supermarkets, yes. Because we know and, that the supermarkets, we know that the suppliers, some of them feel very aggrieved about how they're treated by supermarkets. Yes, and I'll, I'll leave that conversation to them. Now, I found that fact and that disclosure pretty interesting because it hasn't always been obvious in reports on the supplier cost index in the past and that's been the subject of some consternation for business journalists and I actually talked to one of them in an earlier Media Watch this year, it was NBR's Dita Deboni and she said that the media coverage really needs to cast a critical eye over some of these surveys and not just accept them at face value. I wonder whether this was maybe some of that coming into practice. But even if the report is paid for by the supermarkets, does that mean it's wrong? Not necessarily, and I don't want to say, I don't want to impugn anyone's integrity. I mean, Olsen is a respected economist, and he went on to point out that other figures from Statistics NZ lend some credence to what he's saying. Uh, but he is working with figures provided by foodstuffs. I mean, it's it's good to point out who's paying for this stuff just so that people can factor that into their assessment. And the truth is, no matter how good an economist Olsen is, he is working with, he is, I mean, he's, he's limited by the data that he's provided, and that's provided by part of the supermarket duopoly. So there's been some criticism of that data, and as Corin Dan alluded to, some of that criticism has come from suppliers. And uh, Deboni also talked about this with me, and these suppliers say that uh, the, the, the stats that are provided for this report um, are kind of uh, occlude some of the stuff 
Some of the costs that supermarkets inflict on them, that includes charging for promotion, placement and warehousing. She points out that Woolworths, which owns Countdown, is forecasting that it will raise its net profit margins in the coming years. That's something that wouldn't be possible without market dominance. So uh, the narrative about suppliers driving the price rises has also been disputed in other reporting recently, including from News Hub's Janneke to Allen. And she actually gathered a group of suppliers, supermarket suppliers, together back in March and surveyed them on the reasons behind uh, the price rises, and they painted a bit of a different picture. These suppliers have so much to lose they would only speak to us anonymously. Yet they're the ones who've been feeding us for more than a decade, and they're unhappy with the supermarket's profit margins. It's not even a negotiation. You're either coming in at their terms or you're not coming in. It's limitless. Their power is limitless. Yeah, so in their eyes, this isn't a supermarket duopoly at the mercy of suppliers ratcheting up their prices, but rather suppliers at the mercy of the duopoly and that they are really controlling the prices. So that is interesting, an interesting perspective to include in pretty vital context. Now, you wanted to also talk about another study as well, um, this one on tax. Yeah, this study was commissioned by Oliver Shaw, tax consultant, tax consultancy, and it looked at the income tax system in New Zealand. Uh, the, the study's central conclusion is one that almost seems a bit banal, that the rich pay more in tax than the poor, and people on lower incomes pay less tax, and as they move up through the income scale, they pay more. And that's not really big news to anyone that's familiar with the fact that New Zealand has a progressive tax system. But uh, the conclusion drawn from this study, both in the press release announcing it, and in subsequent media reports, is much more disputable. So the headline on RNZ and News Hub was, Rich Paying Their Fair Share of Tax, Study Concludes. In the NBR, it was, Wealthy Kiwis Paying Their Fair Share of Tax, Report. And on News Talk ZB, you had hosts like Raman Travers announcing the results like this. How many times in recent decades have you heard the call for a better and fairer tax system? How many times... Have we heard governments saying that the tax system needs to be looked at? Well, I've got some good news for those at the upper end of income earning who may have been wondering when the tax axe was about to fall, forcing them to hemorrhage more. It turns out our tax system is pretty fair and equitable after all. Well, I'm guessing that hasn't been a particularly popular statement at all quarters, but are there actual issues being raised with how the study came to that conclusion? Yes, there have been quite a few issues raised and several economists have raised them. So uh, Max Rashbrook, a tax researcher who studied inequality in New Zealand pretty extensively, he raised some on Twitter. Uh, He called it very flawed research and highlighted the fact that the survey, this is really the guts of it, as Kieran McNulty would say, the survey (laughs) is looking at taxes on salaries and wages, uh, where our richest people have other sources of income, not least of which is capital. And it also didn't look at GST. So that's another part of the tax system that's a very big part of the tax system and is a flat tax on rich and poor. Uh, Oxfam and tax justice Aotearoa, they also raised those same concerns. I actually took it upon myself to ask the economist Shamabil Jakob for his take. He echoed Rashbrook's point about capital gains and said the survey's method of calculating people's what it calls effective tax rate. So that's um, basically what they pay in their income and then they sort of subtract what they get in welfare payments like working for families Mm -hmm. off that. Uh, He said that was also flawed. So uh, 
there's also the fact, I mean, there's other just contextual facts as well. I mean, stuff in 2021, it used IRD and Treasury data to reveal that the richest Kiwis are paying roughly 12% of their real income in tax. And that's lower than the lowest tax rate paid by people who earn their money from an ordinary job or benefit. I mean, a tax working group commissioned by the Labour government near the beginning of its first term found that our country's tax and benefit system does less to reduce inequality than most countries in the OECD. It could also just be worth making a little bit of a comparison to some other progressive tax systems in the OECD. For instance, Australia. Uh, There, people don't pay any tax on the first $18,200 that they earn, and the top tax rate is $0.45 on the dollar for income over $180,000. Here, you pay money on every single dollar that you earn, 10.5% uh, on your first 14000 or something, and you pay 39% on income over 180000 So, I mean, that's all useful context. Mm-hmm. Did anyone point to potential flaws in the study? Uh, anyone in the media? Yeah. Uh, stuff did do a little bit of that context I measured before, possibly because it was some of their own reporting. And its headline was at least a question rather than a statement or just a, a flat report. I mean, it said, how much are high-income people really paying? RNZ's Giles Beckford as well, he didn't exactly carry out an exhaustive examination of the study or anything, but he did actually ring Robin Oliver and put some questions to him before recounting its results on Checkpoint last night. So here he is beginning a lengthy summary of that conversation. Now, I had a long chat with Robin Oliver about this report, and I said, well, most people aren't going to believe this. You know, they're going to find it pretty hard to swallow. He said, well, you've got to get your mind around the statutory tax take, in other words, the tax brackets, uh, and then the effective tax rate. In other words, when you take into account all the one-offs, the allowances, the tax credits and the like. Now, that's an effective tax rate that Jakob was criticising there. He says, you know... He says the tax you raise and how you spend it are separate and acting like welfare payments are a tax refunders. He, he doesn't think that that's the right thing to do. Uh, now, Beckford went on to expound on some of the ideas Oliver shared with him about how to change the tax system, and that included this. So I said, well, what about you know, other forms of taxation? He's not a man to have a bar of capital gains tax. He thinks that GST could actually be increased, even though most people get grumpy about it and everybody asks for some exemption or other from GST. So no capital gains tax and, of course, the idea of raising GST, which is essentially a flat tax on the rich and poor alike. That's seen as regressive in a lot of quarters. But it's it's worth knowing uh, exactly where the study is coming from and some of the ideological commitments of the people that are commissioning it. Mm. Is there any other useful context about this study that that wasn't included? Yeah, one other relevant bit of context, which I thought was almost one of the more, I mean, this is one of the the, the worst omissions, is why why this report was commissioned in the first place. Now, next Wednesday, the IRD and Treasury are going to reveal some research entirely focused on how fair our tax system is, the same topic. And Oliver Shaw itself, it's been open about this. It says it commissions appear to carry out this research because looking at the IRD and Treasury's proposed methodology, it was concerned that it could easily be interpreted to produce a misleading picture of the fairness of our tax rules. Essentially, they're worried that it will produce the opposite picture to their report, that the tax that rich people are paying is not their fair share, I think. So this was essentially a shot across the bow ahead of a report next week that's likely to draw the opposite or a different conclusion. Uh, 
And that's pretty relevant to your reporting on it, right? And mm-hmm. it's interesting because that fact is not hidden by Oliver Shaw. They haven't done anything wrong here. They've been upfront about it on their website. Uh, but it hasn't really been in many media reports apart from stuffs. So I think that that's a bit of a failure. So you're basically saying the coverage didn't really apply enough rigour and perhaps uh, scepticism. Yeah, that's certainly the conclusion of several of the people I've spoken to, and that includes a few economists. So, I mean, Yaka was pretty strong. He called the coverage incompetent. He said, you know, journalists should have looked at the motivation behind the report and questioned why most, uh, he questioned why most didn't attempt to gather additional expertise before hitting publish. Mm. You know, probably because it's pretty hard. I mean, in part, I, to be fair, it's pretty hard when you don't have time or resources and you're pumping out, mm-hmm. you know, five, 15 stories a day if you're <laughs> online. But, yeah. yeah. But, but is there a wider point to be drawn on the coverage of these reports about how the media does report these sort of studies? I mean, it seems like if something is presented in the form of a study, it can often get an easier ride perhaps in the media. It's a bit of a gift. Yeah, I think there's something to that, to be honest. I, and I, I maybe I think about it in my own reporting. Like if something is re- presented to you as a study, a report, then you're just more likely to go, oh, well, that seems fine and wave it through. It seems like maybe it's a bit of a hack. And again, I don't want to impugn the integrity of the economists fronting these reports, but I think the way they've been covered, do, covered does show a bit of a vulnerability in the media's usual standards of balance and impartiality, because it seems commissioning a report on something can be pretty helpful when it comes to evading the media's bias senses in a way. So if you couch a message in the form of a study or a report, you can get uncritical coverage of that message, even if it is, in fact, highly ideological, even if you are trying to prove a point or uh, undermine the IRD and Treasury's point from next week. Or, uh, I mean, even if potentially your point might be fundamentally flawed or the data that you're using is of questionable providence. If it's in a study form, you're going to get it reported. So, I mean, a simple press release from a partisan organisation would never get that same kind of run. And maybe that's fair enough in a way. I mean, there's a lot more work that goes into producing a study uh, than just churning out a simple press release from the in-house PR team. But it does seem to be a bit of a media hack. And the concern is probably that this is a hack that's more accessible to wealthier organisations. I mean, studies cost money. Hiring economists to do this kind of thing, it costs money. Uh, I don't think that poorer organisation or poorer taxpayers or poorer people on the poor end of the income tax scale are actually getting the kind of money together to put these studies together. So it's an interesting one. It's something I've been thinking about a lot today. We've got two and a half minutes to go, um, Hayden. Um, A weird letter to the editor this week. Yeah, I... (laughs) There was a letter to the editor in the Herald. Uh, it was one of the weirder ones. It says, it, it's from Wayne Brown. It's just titled, Not Unfriendly. I don't suppose it's possible to get your opinion writers to use facts before writing about me. For instance, those present, as opposed to your opinion writers, will know that I didn't criticise people at the Project Auckland lunch, nor do I have an unfriendly relationship with the council CEO or other workers there or with employees at my own and other companies I've been involved with, nor do I read speeches written by others. I write my own stuff. And then it's uh, Wayne Brown, Mayor, Auckland Council, and then in brackets, not the other Wayne Brown there, the one whose phone number the emergency management actually had. Close bracket. One of the strangest... (laughs) I'm sorry to read it all out. One of the strangest letters to the editor 
from apparently Amir, and I thought, maybe is this a hoax? Yeah, it was, no, it was the right Wayne Brown. I need to check it out with the Herald. If you're from the Herald, this must be that you must have checked it out. This is the right Wayne Brown. He's actually written this to you. Um, a bit of, I mean, but a nice little point at the end, not the Wayne Brown who got all the phone calls, yeah, all on the, the phone calls when the rain was coming down. Yeah, on the flooding night. <laughs> apparently that was a problem. Just as a, If you hadn't picked that up, there, some of the emergency management phone calls were coming into another Wayne Brown and the emergency management team at Auckland Council. Yeah, shooting from the hip, eh? And, and finally, the end of an era. What's this about? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, this is probably more, I think, Colin's pet peeve than yeah. mine, but the Herald has... Uh, it, it, it has a very clever series called Chris versus Chris. Uh, Chris Hipkins and Chris Luxon. Yes. You know, you know, we have two politicians called Chris, and they do who won the week uh, every week. And this 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 week, they've realised that it was actually a bit. It wasn't a great. It's a bit of a lame concept. They said Beehive Diaries <laughs> was a bit bored by both Chris's this week, and we therefore declare the battle of the Chris's a draw. We're hoping both Chris's get a good rest this recess and come back refreshed in the coming week. Maybe they'll be provided with enough material in the lead up to an election, but there's going to be some weeks where both Chris's are kind of boring, unfortunately. <laughs> Hayden, thanks so much uh, for that. Put a lot of work into it tonight and uh, appreciate that. And uh, we look forward to, of course, uh, Colin on Sunday. Oh, yes. With Media Watch uh, around 9 o'clock.